Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. With a surge in COVID-19 cases continuing in Utah and uh, many areas across the country and a vaccine on the horizon, we're going to look at the current situation and look ahead on the program today. Our guest for the hour is Dr. Stuart Fisher, Medical Director of the Bronx Gardens Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in New York City. And we're going to talk about the impact of holiday travel on the spread of the virus, how people living with chronic conditions can stay healthy, and lessons learned from the pandemic, among many other topics. You're welcome to join us as well. We hope to get your question or comment during this hour. A couple of ways to do that, upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com is the email and the phone number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Dr. Stuart Fisher is a graduate of Yale University, um, as I mentioned, medical director of the Bronx Gardens Rehabilitation and Nursing Center. Um, he worked as an emergency room attending physician at Cabrini Hospital for four years, he spent nine years, nine years as practice associate of legendary Dr. Robert Atkins. He's an author. He's written uh, books including The Park Avenue Diet, The Little Book of Big Medical Emergencies, and the new book is a collection of short stories about the life of a doctor called The Invisible Worm That Flies in the Night. Uh, Dr. Fisher, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you, and this is a subject I know very well, so I'm, I'm willing to answer questions from the full spectrum. This is, of course, something new to all of us. A pandemic is something nobody has experienced in a very long time, to say the least. The famous influenza infection of 100 years ago was an epidemic, not a pandemic. And that caused widespread destruction. And as we know, it's a fluid situation changing every day. That's interesting. So you say 100 years ago, that was an epidemic. Of course, it killed many more people, but uh, an epidemic. Yes. Uh, so it was an epidemic, the deaths were primarily due to a superimposed pneumonia on top of a viral illness, namely influenza. If there had been IV antibiotics back 100 years ago, many, many lives would have been saved. So, as you say, we haven't experienced a pandemic on this scale. Um, and now, what, eight, nine months in... Um, I don't know what the situation is right now in New York, but I'm I'm just detecting here in Utah um, just fatigue with, you know, just ready for this to be done. And in the middle of all this, uh, this this surge and heading into winter and 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 things are looking pretty bleak. Well, I think the surge uh, is actually the infect the the uh, infection itself. It's nothing new. There's no new virus. There's no people who have gotten sick once are very unlikely to get sick a second time. More is known about this virus and possible treatments and and how to identify it, which we'll go over. But we're still in the throes, what I think of the original uh, infection. And I must tell you and your listeners that I was I was a trendy New Yorker. I caught COVID in January, this last January. Mm. And usually I get one cold per year, even though I've been a doctor 40 years. Every October, November, I get what's ever going around. However, in January, I got another cough and temperature, and I thought, this, this is very unusual. 
thank goodness it went away in two days. And I believe it or not, I was working as a medical director the whole time. Weeks or months later, I had a blood test done that showed antibodies to the COVID virus, which meant indeed I had had it. And uh, you, uh, at that point, were you the medical director at the nursing center there? I, I was at a different place, oh, a different even place. larger place. Okay. But no one else was sick. No one else got sick. And uh, the thing kind of, I, I never thought twice about it. I went to Europe a month later, and when I was coming back from Europe, I was stopped by customs in late February in Kennedy Airport, and the question they asked me was, have you been to China? And I said, what? They said they and three different people asked me after I went to China and I said no I was in Europe I went to the see classical music in Europe and I again I thought nothing of it a month later I thought yay 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 <laughs> and then <laughs> now you know where we are now yeah that's and of course the things were were pretty brutal there in in New York City right what's the situation now yes we we got hit first for two reasons. One is, by the way, this is all from articles. I don't, I'm from Brooklyn. I don't make this kind of stuff up. Uh, what, the initial reason New York was hit the hardest was airports. It was a major hub, and flights were coming in from two different directions to New York City, from China, obviously, and from Europe, which, as you know, was... Uh, the main way that, the unfortunately, the virus traveled here, from China to Italy, and from Italy spreading like wildfire through their airports, and then coming to New York, we got a wave of COVID patients where I work as a medical director, I would say late March and really in April. And right now I'm pleased to say that we've been inspected by the New York State Department of Health yesterday and about a month ago, we got an A-plus rating, which is unheard of in nursing homes, as you might imagine. And we are COVID-free, although when I say that, I cross my fingers because no one in the hospital next door to where I'm working, St. Barnabas Hospital, an excellent facility, I don't think they have any COVID patients right now. And the percentages in New York kind of leveled off. The, the, uh, it's, it's sitting around the 3% level of new infections. If, as you know, there's no theater, there's restaurants are a mess, people are unemployed, it's, it's a desperate situation, and, and it looks like a ghost town. No tourists, no, no visitors, nobody. But I think the illness is, is ebbing but when it's Mother Nature, we can never second-guess Mother Nature. There may indeed be another wave, as is happening in many other places, especially California, from what I've been reading. Yeah, and including some areas where, you know, they may have thought, oh, we're isolated. You know, North Dakota, for example. <laughs> we're fairly isolated. Maybe right. it's not going to have a surge here. That's definitely been a surge. I want to uh, read to you a, a quote uh, that I just, uh, I think, read this morning from Dr. Robert Redfield uh, from the CDC. Uh, he says, December, January, and February are going to be rough times. I actually believe they're going to be the most difficult time in public health history of this nation. 
that's pretty stark. Uh, do, you, do you share that view? What uh, What do you think? I'm an eternal optimist. That's just my nature. But in medicine, we have to be re- realistic and somewhat pessimistic to prepare. To be optimistic and put our heads like an ostrich in the ground is no way to confront any type of illness, whether it's a hangnail or COVID. But better to be prepared and then be over-prepared as we were in New York. You know, we had a a floating hospital. There was a Central Park hospital. The Javits Center was turned into a hospital. A convention center was turned into a hospital. No patients materialized, thank goodness, to, to warrant that, but better that way than to be unprepared. As I've read, it happened obviously in Italy when it first hit, and other parts of the country where the system became overwhelmed and non-COVID patients. Remember, we, we were dealing with cardiac patients, cancer patients. They would they couldn't even get into the hospital or to get elective treatments done because of the tsunami of COVID cases. Do you think that's uh, the, is that likely to be repeated? I, the healthcare system is pretty stressed right now. You can. Things can get worse. You have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. I was an emergency room physician for four years, and when I was an emergency room physician in the mid-1980s, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. Very, very similar in not not, uh, physical ways, but in terms of social and psychological ways. I would diagnose one, two, or three people every single day I worked in the emergency room with pneumocystis carini, which was the abnormal pneumonia unique to AIDS. I would diagnose people who walked in off the street who didn't know what was wrong with them, and unfortunately, they had a a brand-new illness. This is the COVID, I'm sorry to say, is my second brand-new illness, as you know, there is nothing in the medical textbooks about this. It's such a new illness. But the research has been phenomenal. I have heard through my little grapevine that in about two or three weeks, I'll be able to receive the vaccine. And because I'm a medical provider and medical director and author of three books and everything else, I have some kind of priority for the vaccine. And it's a good vaccine, from what I've read again, 94% effective. The influenza vaccine that everyone takes every year or, or may need to is 24% effective. That just shows you how fast research has come in the past six months. The, uh, the government has announced that uh, their hope is by the end of December, by the end of the year, uh, they can get this vaccine out to 100 million people or so, starting, I guess, with the most vulnerable healthcare workers, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, What can we expect in terms of uh, if the vaccine does prove uh, very effective, um, what what can we look at? I guess a best case scenario, the vaccine gets out to uh, everyone um, by when and and can we expect uh, easing of the of the pandemic at, uh, I guess, by when? By when? Yes. The vaccine takes a couple of weeks to work. Um, interestingly, just so your listeners know, when you get COVID, you develop antibodies to COVID, as you would to 
a vaccine, for example, for polio, measles, mumps, rubella, any of those illnesses that we've had or been vaccinated for, our immune system is able to fight them off because it can secrete antibodies, which is the way it kills viruses, or it remembers what the antibody was like. I have antibodies in my bloodstream, as far as I can tell right today, trying to feel my blood, my, my skin, seeing if they're still there. I have antibodies from January. In other words, many months later, 11 months later, I still have the immune system of someone who can fight off COVID. On the other hand, many people have low antibodies, very low antibodies, and they're thought to be not really protected, but the paradox is they may also be protected because their T cells, this is where it gets a little complicated, remember COVID and direct other cells, the beta cells, to produce antibody. So just so you know, putting it into a simple statement, when people get the test in the nose, as I call it, the swab test for COVID, that checks to see if you have COVID today or if you've recently had COVID. You can actually get a positive test several weeks after COVID after all the garbage from the lungs and respiratory passages comes back up, upwards and gets out of the body. But the antibodies will tell you an antibody blood test, not the swab test, will tell you if you have had it before. If someone has been exposed, they have limited immunity. But so far, there aren't cases, more than a handful, I believe, of people who got COVID twice. So, uh, so that's good news. That, that, you know, I guess, you know, to, uh, take it where you can. Um, so if the, if the vaccine has successful rollout, a wide rollout, wide acceptance, of course, these are all ifs, um, or, or are we looking at return to quote unquote normal summertime? Normal life? Yeah. 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 So uh, it's, it's, that sounds plausible because the vaccine will be a wall between the person and the virus. Right now, we have our own immune systems, but the vaccine will train our immune system of what a COVID virus looks like so that we can nip these things in the bud. One of the scary things about COVID is that it's not really a pneumonia. People know about the droplets and the masks and all that stuff, and and coughing and singing and sneezing and all that stuff, but it really is not like influenza, the flu, or some of the other winter viruses, even like coronaviruses. You know that COVID is not the only coronavirus, and probably many of us, if not all of us, have had a normal, in quotes, coronavirus winter illness. Rhinovirus is another one, normal respiratory illness. But COVID causes blood clots, and that's one of the big differences between COVID and your typical run-of-the-mill winter flu or pneumonia. We know about green phlegm and coughing up goobers, you'll pardon my expression, etc. That's a typical winter pneumonia. COVID is blood clots. And when I saw emergencies here at Bronx Gardens in April, the, 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 um, I don't like to put it this way, but 
the people were unbelievably sick, near death, and had to be raced to a hospital because of the complications of the blood clots, which could include heart attacks, strokes, and severe damage to the lungs, which can persist permanently after COVID, for a little while after COVID, or can go away after COVID. My, I had a chest X-ray at my own insistence about a month or two ago. My doctor from Mount Sinai, a great doctor, didn't want to do an X-ray. And I said, doctor, you have to do an X-ray. And I, I actually got to look at my own post-COVID X-ray, biting my nails down, and it was fine. Oh, that's so that's you, good. Yeah, no way to be. You got knowledge is very important here. Yeah, uh, you. Uh, I'm looking at your uh, Twitter feed, um, and uh, noticed you had uh, posted an an article. By the way, at the fit uh, doctor, uh, Doctor Stuart Fisher's um, Twitter feed. Uh, post an article on uh, statnews.com, how to get the most of COVID-19 vaccines. And the writer of the article says that, you know, there are ways we can sort of meander around, not be effective in the rollout. One of the ways uh, they, they say that we could maybe squander this is to rush this out uh, too fast. And that could undermine public confidence. Uh you, you pay, in, in medicine, as in life, as in Las Vegas, you pays your money, you takes your chances. This is our best shot. There is no anti, if you remember, there have been other things touted for this particular illness. An antiviral, I don't want to give the name because it's complicated, is given sometimes to very sick people in the intensive care unit. This is not for 300 million Americans. This is a very expensive, brand-new antiviral. This is for people in the throes of death, and, 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 and you're not guaranteed to work. Another one, on the other hand, is quinine. This, of course, made uh, history when a certain president of the United States recommended it. I won't say his name you know, because it's, uh, it's forbidden these days. But he, quinine, interestingly enough, in the earliest stages of an infection of malaria and, guess what, with COVID, prevents the respiratory cells of the lungs from taking up some viruses, not all. If someone has a very bad exposure to someone with COVID, there's nothing that can really help short of a, a hospitalization. But in limited doses, People are using quinine, which is a very old medicine, goes back 150-plus years, and is actually a natural product, which is hilarious. It's from the cinchona tree from the Amazons, and it's a drug. Quinine is a drug. It's been used as a heart medication, also called quinidine. It has some limited effect in COVID, but just to make light of it, when this whole thing started and I did not realize that I'd had COVID, I would be drinking tonic water every day, which is quinine water, which you can buy in your supermarket. And it has limited, a little bit of limited preventative activity. There's not going to be any one thing that we can do that can stop the entire tsunami. What is being done now is, I think, with all good intentions, the right thing. There are many side effects to the regulations. P- 
People ask me all the time, and I have the same answer, what do you think about Governor Cuomo's doing this, or Mayor de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, doing that? And I tell them, for example, how many people can eat in a bar? How many people can, can go to, the, to a movie? How many people can go to a gym? I tell people this is not medicine, it is the law, and therefore, when it's the law, I have no different recommendations. The schools are open. As you know, in New York, the schools are closed. The colleges are open. They're closed. Which do I favor? Unfortunately or fortunately, these are mandates from the United States government, and they come first. (laughs) I I won't recommend anything that is against any accepted program that's going on now. Mm. However, we, don't, we haven't turned the corner. And a lot of the things that have been done to try to help COVID have hurt. The education of young people has taken a beating. The theater industry, the flight industry, restaurants, I, I'm sure where you are, many other wonderful people have had their livelihoods in tatters, their relationships are in tatters. This is not merely a medical nightmare. It is a psychological and social nightmare, and we must all realize the toll it is taking on us as regular people, not just as individuals with lungs. Let's take a break, and then I want to pick that up, uh, because that's that's a very important part of this, the psychological, social toll, psychological and social you know, and behavior modification and and the whole debate about that as well, with not only government mandates, but, you know, social norming and, and the like, all with with this 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 overarching backdrop of a, of a deadly pandemic. Uh, we're talking uh, on the program today with uh, Dr. Stuart Fisher. He's medical director of Bronx Gardens Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in New York City. And we're talking about uh, the pandemic, looking ahead, lessons from the pandemic, and what can be done. Um, and you're welcome to join the program, upraxcess at gmail.com with your question or comment, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com or 800-826-1495. Let's take a brief break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, now, uh, well, 11 months in or so, we, we uh, understand that, uh, you know, we had uh, cases even before we knew, and one of those uh, turned out to be our guest for the hour, Dr. Stuart Fisher. He's medical director of the Bronx Gardens Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in New York City. Uh, there are vaccines. Uh, look like they're going to be implemented uh, quite soon. Already been approved in Great Britain, for example. Uh, soon, very likely, in the United States. Uh, but... Dr. Redfield from the CDC says he believes uh, the next few months is going to be the most difficult time in public health history of this nation. You're welcome to join this conversation with your question or comment to uh, our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or 800-826-1495 is our number, 800-826-1495. Um, and Dr. Fisher has background in emergency uh, room medicine and, and uh, now is medical director of a nursing center. A lot of, uh, a lot of experience, uh, broad experience uh, bringing to this uh, topic. Uh, 
Uh, so, Dr. Fisher, you, you made reference to a very important uh, subtopic here, which is the psychological and social effects here, and, the, and that gets us into this debate. Uh, government mandates, a whole debate over what those should be, right? Um, and then a debate within right. society about uh, what do we do? Um, so I want to start with, um, with this. Um, saw this in a report on uh, Fox 13 here in Utah. Um, and they're quoting the COVID States Project. Uh, they do a, a regular report. Uh, the COVID States Project, uh, quoting this headline, showed in, in a November report that Utah and neighboring states to the north are not following social distance guidelines uh, guidance at the same levels of other states, ranking near the bottom. Utah, however, is ranking in the middle in mask uh, wearing. Um, I... I what we, the conventional wisdom, what we're hearing from uh, the medical community is mask wearing, social distancing. These are two very important, you know, uh, uh, you know, social things that we can do, which would, if we would all adopt these, uh, help greatly. Uh, but many people are not doing it. Right. And the question is, what, what should we do about that? And the other question is, what are, what's happening because of that? What should we do about that? Well, as I said earlier, when something is the law, it's the law. On the New York City subway, you can be fined $50 if you don't have a mask. In France, if you decide to stay out late, <laughs> everything is closed. If you, stay, if you stay out late, you're going to get a fine from the police who are roaming around for $150 plus for the first offense and 1500 for the next offense. The death rate from COVID is approximately 0.2%. In other words, it's a very small number of people die from COVID. With children, since we're, this is another controversial topic, the number of little, little kids that have died from COVID, unless I'm mistaken, what I read yesterday is under 10 in the United States totally. However, I'd rather have precautions than not. But what are we going to do? My neighborhood is a perfect example. There are people who behave like good, good little boy and Girl Scouts and wear the mask everywhere they go. Then there are people who will flaunt their, their, their Greenwich Village independence and just want to look like, like uh, they used to with <laughs> normal attire. And then there's a group of people who are like, uh, I don't like the word, but it's an effective one, school moms or proctors and exams that check to make sure that everyone is properly attired when they go out in public and curse and yell and point at the people like characters from the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So with, the, with a pandemic, I've said to people who can bring out the worst in any of us, and why, why is it so scary? Why are we so frightened of this thing? One easy answer I like to give is that it is something you cannot see. A virus is totally in, invisible, it can't be seen under a microscope. You have no idea where it is, and I assure you where I'm sitting right now, it's floating through the air, maybe a couple of viruses that nobody will catch, but they're, they're floating by here, here in the Bronx. 
But what are we? What, how are we going to turn this around? The only way we can really turn this around is with the medications that we talked about, namely the uh, the vaccine. There's monoclonal antibodies. It's a little complicated, but it's another way of treating hospitalized patients, steroids, and so on. But the psychological and social toll it is taking on us can be around for decades after this. Kids who are not going to school or college and learning about social interactions, which is one of the points of going to, to a school, what's going to happen to them? People who have no friends and just go do shopping and nothing else in a day, what's going to happen to them? People who are, are in a relationship, the relationship can be strained and can be broken the cause of irritability, bills to pay, fears, jobs lost. This is, to me, this is an epidemic also. Uh, maybe not a pandemic, but an epidemic. So the psychological, physical, and social sides are important. And that brings me just for a moment to the World Health Organization definition of health, which is mental, physical, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease. So I think it's going to be a long, long time before we have what we would call health back in the United States. I want to follow up with that, but first I want to follow up with, uh, you, you mentioned the, the, the death rate, 0.2%, um, um, which, you, which you mentioned is uh, characterized as somewhat low. But the overall numbers, we're heading toward, what, 300,000 people dead this year, which is a, yes. that's, that's a high yes, number. Yeah. Well, let's, let's even look at what, uh, yesterday, yesterday in the United States, there were 3,100 deaths due to COVID and about 100,000 hospitalizations on yesterday itself. So let's, let's say that that's uh, 2,000 per state or something like that. Most people who get COVID get better. Many people who get COVID, like what I had, don't even know about it. I had, a, I had a fever. Plenty of people get COVID and nothing happens at all. And these are what we call carriers who can unfortunately bring their dying COVID viruses into grandma's home and cause havoc. So any death, <clears throat> obviously, is tragic. That's the, there's no getting around that. And I've been a physician 40 years, and I, I, there's life and death is a tremendous difference. The numbers are very, very scary for most people. And the numbers sometimes encourage people, like Sweden did, and I think England initially, to go for what is called herd immunity. <clears throat> herd immunity is actually a farming term, and it refers to a, a, an illness that spreads through animals and is eventually gives the the animals develop immunity to it well the animals don't have hospitals cows don't go to the hospital despite what you might think in the bronx however people do get very very sick and we cannot ignore this because it's it's a life every life is precious so just by saying it's 0.2 percent to me that i'm not trying to negate the gravity of the situation. But one thing I like to I find fascinating is 
and I was a, I worked with Dr. Atkins, the most famous diet doctor of all time. If you tell people they have high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, they have to lose weight, or they will get worse diabetes and blood pressure, 95% of people will ignore your recommendation. The, tr- the cure rate for obesity is 5%. So this is, to me, norm- a normal illness, if I can put it that way. A mundane illness, this that affects 60% of America, namely obesity. This is, of course, it's now it's marginalized, but I'd like to remind listeners and everyone else that people who have visceral fat due to obesity, in other words, bad diabetes, weight, blood pressure, etc., are at extremely high risk for the most feared complication of COVID of all, which is called a cytokine storm, which is a very high fever that's terrifying to witness, which I, I have. And when, when the person has a cytokine storm, it's their immune system going crazy due to the, this is how COVID injures people. And obesity is the number one risk factor for whether or not this is going to happen, of a modifiable risk factor. Some things are not modifiable, such as people who are in a nursing home. They're kind of stuck there. If someone walks in with COVID, then it will spread like wildfire. And I am tested every week for COVID and screened and my temperature taken on my forehead. And I go along with these things fastidiously because my my calling in life is to make everyone's life as uh, healthy and long as possible. I want to follow up with with that. Uh, you know, we talked about the psychological and and social uh, aspect of this, and and part of this is, uh, you know, many believe and would hope that, you know, we we would all work together. Uh, in in large part to protect the most vulnerable, you know that I wear a mask, and that has a chain reaction. If everybody does that and protects the most vulnerable, um, you, you uh, work there in a, in a situation where you have a lot of very vulnerable people uh, collected there, and of course, very stringent measures. I would I would assume to protect them. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that, and then is it? I mean, is is for example, Governor DeSantis in, in Florida at a certain point said, well, we're going to do DEFCON 5 with the nursing homes, and then, uh, but the rest of us are going to open up, uh, you know, uh, pretty wide. And that had kind of mixed results. Um, is this something we, as a society we all have to work together on, or can we identify vulnerable uh, spots and just protect them? I think it's, well, I, I think we've learned our lesson from the horrors of the last couple of months that the most vulnerable are, oddly enough, the most vulnerable. And, for example, we have rooms here at Bronx Gardens for people who have had COVID, thank goodness there's none right now, people who are recuperating, people who are have other illnesses or in jeopardy. There's a separate unit for this, which there wasn't before. There's a designated floor with people coming from the hospital with COVID. As you might remember, initially, people were sent from the hospital to the nursing home immediately with COVID in the idea that they would recuperate and not be able to 
infected anyone. And uh, this, uh, this didn't work out very well. Infectious diseases are, by the nature of the adjective, infectious. Diabetes is not an infectious disease. Uh, COVID, a very intelligent virus, evil as anything, but very intelligent, knows where to go. The whole point of a COVID virus's life, quotes, remember they're not alive, the whole point of a COVID uh, virus's life is to make as many copies of itself as possible. So if it goes into someone with a functioning immune system, which is most people, it can turn out zillions more copies, and then the person coughs and out comes more COVID than went in, if I could put it that way. Uh, some people are at greater risk than others, and I have friends in New York who have been housebound for months with good reason that they have had chemotherapy or they have uh, certain medications they take, like prednisone, which are immune suppressants, there are a lot of people that are, are changed their lives. I don't even know if you would call it living right now, with the single purpose of war, keeping as far from an infectious disease emergency as possible. But we can't. One of the problems right now is people in general, not just us Americans, love to blame each other for problems that have nothing to do with you or me. This is inherent in the human being, and it's also, it's even an inherited animals. They, they fight with each other over something that has nothing to do with, with either of them. The blame that's going back and forth, that went back and forth during the election, it, it scares people. These, these infectious disease emergencies scare people. It makes people very, very, very protective of themselves. And it really, sometimes that can actually backfire. There are people who are out of work, for example, that they would give anything to go back to work, and they're living. They don't have a paycheck coming in right now. What are, what are we going to? We cannot neglect that either. We cannot pretend, pretend that our only purpose in life is to protect 300 million people in the United States against COVID. It will never go away in our lifetime. There will always be some people who are exposed to this particular virus from other SARS viruses, like the one 17 years ago, you, this, the bird flu one. When the virus mutates from its original form, it tends to get weaker and less infective and less deadly. And we're hoping this is going to happen with the current COVID-19 virus. Right now, an initial exposure could theoretically killed anyone, let's say. Again, I gave you the percentages before, but when the virus mutates, the same thing happened with the influenza virus. It became less deadly since 1918 and now is mutated into a form where you and I know that lots of people get the flu and they take a few days off from work and they get better. It's not the illness it was where it decimated the United States a hundred years ago. Let's uh, take another break. We'll come back with our last segment. Our guest is Dr. Stuart Fisher. He's uh, currently medical director of Bronx Gardens Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in uh, New York City. We're talking about the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and related topics, and we'll have more following this. <music> 
Thanks for joining us on Access Utah today. We're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, all of its aspects. You're welcome to join us, uh, 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking with Dr. Stuart Fisher, who's Medical Director of Bronx Gardens Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in New York City. Uh, Dr. Fisher, I want to talk just briefly about uh, holiday travel. Uh, CDC recommended people not travel on Thanksgiving, according to AAA up to 50 million people traveled. Um, and uh, I'm guessing we'd, we'd, I'm guessing this will have an effect on the numbers of uh, COVID cases, just looking at it logically. And uh, looking ahead, of course, the holiday season, there may well be more travel. I, uh, there's no question in my mind that the uptick in statistics is due to that. There's no question in my mind. The, the, uh, I believe the number of deaths yesterday was a record high. Even there's a little activity more in New York City. We'll, we don't like to go anywhere. We're kind of just happy where we are. But the travel part, I think, is, uh, is a significant risk factor for uh, the, the, pre- the increased prevalence of COVID. And this is the right timing. This is about a week and change after Thanksgiving, right? And this is the, the time period in which people would develop signs and symptoms. So although correlation does not imply causation, we have a lot to think about, soul-searching to think about for Christmas and New Year's. And again, I suppose, and it goes to other practices that are encouraged or discouraged, uh, which which could positively affect outcomes here during the pandemic. Uh, I suppose, unless you have pretty severe penalties, uh, you're not going to you're not going to change behavior with a lot of people. There, there, there's a way to do things right, and then there's and then there's, and then there's the law. Uh, people, unless it's uh, for, for example. Back when I was a medical student, when people had tuberculosis, which was one of those other uh, uh, plague-type infectious diseases, very deadly illness, very, very contagious, by the way, if a patient or a person refused to take tuberculosis medicine and they were, uh, their X-ray was abnormal and they had active tuberculosis and they refused to take medication, they were arrested I will repeat that. The person was arrested and put into confinement, forced to take a couple of weeks of antibiotics, and then they could go home. So this is other illnesses where then there's rules. You go to a venereal disease clinic, a sexually transmitted disease clinic, you got to fill cards out, you got to do all kinds of other stuff. This is when... A public health emergency has a legal component to it also. So if push comes to shove, some administration or governor or, or mayor may err on the side of excessive strictness. There will be a side effect to this, obviously. Uh, I've read that the governor of California wants people to keep people's masks on when they're eating and just quickly pull the mask down when they're eating and then quickly put the mask back up. My other, I would also suggest you could put a hole in the mask. Just get a hole in the mask. If that's if you're going to 
that can go even further. There can be restrictions that can be so severe that people won't do them. You, 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 I'm sure you realize that there is a group of people who, let's say, they don't like vaccines, they didn't want to do the measles vaccine for their kids for one reason or another. Now they're told you must wear a mask, and they've decided their role in, in life is to show people that you don't really need a mask for an infectious disease emergency. It is, if things get worse, I don't think that uh, it's going to be the, the same. For uh, Airports are going to change, I believe, that will require the vaccine for international travel. As soon as I heard there was a vaccine and I go to Europe to go to see classical music performances, I said this is going to be a requirement. And even for my job, I have to take the flu vaccine. If I don't want to take the flu vaccine, Dr. Fisher will be working at Dunkin' Donuts or somewhere else. It's a legal requirement that I have this vaccine. And therefore, I'm not objecting to this, but there comes a point where public health has a legal component. Once there's a legal component to it, it gets, obviously, there's overtones of George Orwell in 1984. There's overtones of, of other societies. There are political issues involved. Well, what about uh, protest groups that didn't have masks on? It gets into very, very controversial areas that I don't think have anything to do with with medicine on, on the ground, so to speak. Um, I'd like to We just have oh, about uh, four minutes left. Um... I want to take a look at uh, you know, lessons from this pandemic for the future. I'm assuming this won't be the last virus that, uh, that, that comes around and causes problems, you know, maybe epidemics, you know, hopefully not a pandemic on this scale, you know, uh, right away. But what, what lessons uh, can, we, can we take forward and can we, can we effectively prepare? Or are these unknowns just so prepare? unknown that we, can, that we can't prepare for the next How one? could we have prepared for AIDS, for example, which is also, which is originally a zoonosis, like uh, um, COVID is, or SARS, the bird flu? How can we prepare? You can't. You can't. Infectious diseases are another component of life on Earth, and they're, they're enemies. There are they're, they're nasty little things that can spread death to a whole the bubonic plague, I could go through a whole list of them. What is the lesson we take from this? I'll tell you the lesson in one sentence. There is no more greater gift than health in our lives. People, if we have to find out the easy way or the hard way, sometimes your shoulders is sick, sometimes your lung is sick, sometimes your soul is sick. But illness is terrible. Health is a precious gift that we must respect and work towards every single day of our lives. I know this is a physician. I know this is someone with a human body. This gets lost in the shuffle. And if we don't really care about health and that we cannot do anything else in our lives without health, we're going to, we'll go backwards. That is, the, for me, the absolute number one takeaway immediately. Secondly, we must not fight with ourselves about this. It's very it's easy for me to say, 
but relationships need to be things need to be ironed out priorities need to be ironed out we need strength we need a sense of community we need a respect a sense of respect for each other helping the, the people who are the most disadvantaged and the most at risk we have to be very idealistic proactive and realistic about this pandemic you know, it's interesting you put that in the context that, uh, you know, uh, community health uh, affects, obviously, individual health. We, we need to get along with each other. There's no... There's no, no. Uh, you're, you're cutting you out a little bit there. Through Amazon, it's something you must work on every day, every single day, no matter what your age is, because you never know what can come along. Diabetes, high cholesterol, some of these other, uh, in quotes, minor problems, or a surprise visit from a deadly virus that is, it came from a cave, a back cave somewhere in China to be in 2016, by the way. The virus has been around for a while. This didn't just happen. The virus is now thought to have gone back a couple of years, but unfortunately now it's, uh, the, the secret is out. Well, we, uh, it's a good, good place to end the uh, conversation out of time. Um, we've been talking with Dr. Stuart Fisher, medical director of the Bronx Gardens Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in New York City. Uh, he's also an author, uh, author of the Park Avenue Diet, a little book of big emerge- medical emergencies, and the new book, a collection of short stories about the life of a doctor called The Invisible Worm That Flies in the Night. Uh, Dr. Fisher, thank you so much. It's a great honor and pleasure to be with you. The subject is ongoing. If you want me back, I'll be pleased to give some more information. But we, we really need to hunker down, think about our priorities in life, and make sure of the wellness of ourselves, our friends, family, and neighbors. All right. Well said. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.